This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. And welcome to the Three Lions Podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. I hope I find you well uh, and that you've enjoyed some of the recent episodes that I've released. I'm always trying to spread the England world or word, uh, share what I've learned and this is another one of those. This is an episode that's taken me a while to uh, to put together and one a couple of people have asked me about, so I hope it fulfills a, a yearning spot, as it were. It is the latest in the series of England managers. Since 2021, I've taken a chronological look at each man that has overseen arguably the hardest job in world football, the England manager's job. I began with Walter Winterbottom, then moved on to Alf Ramsey, Don Revy, Ron Greenwood, Bobby Robson and Graham Taylor. To date, there have been 15 full-time England managers. Terry Venables was to be the seventh. Now, in the past, I've spoken with authors who have written about each manager for either their biography or autobiography. In this instance, uh, I've tried to speak with three people who have either written for or about Terry, but I wasn't successful for a variety of reasons, which I'm not going to go into. But I have found someone who is well-versed in everything England to have a chat with me about Terry. Despite the author knockbacks, I have read both of Terry Venable's autobiographies. His first was released in 1996, and then his next one in 2014, subtitled Born to Manage, are both great insights into him and his life. He's one of those managers that seems to have that connection to all England fans, despite only having a short stint in charge. Of course, his time at the helm during Euro 96 helped that. But there was so much more that I learnt that I wasn't aware of, which no doubt we will cover. And of course, if you've not heard any of the previous manager episodes, they can be found at your podcast provider of choice or threelionspodcast.com. Now, There is a period in Terry's life that caused him a lot of issues and difficulty. His time at Tottenham and his association with Sir Alan Sugar. I have been warned that this is still a controversial subject. So if you'll forgive me, we'll probably steer around that with not so much comment. But if you want to know more, uh, of course you can read his books or do your own research. It is all there, but uh, I've chosen to to give it a little bit of a swerve and concentrate on some other events that have happened in his life.
It's my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Glenn Isherwood, curator of the website EnglandFootballOnline.com and also author of the book Wembley, The Complete Record. Hello, Glenn. Hi, Russell. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Good to have you uh, back on the podcast. I know we've spoken uh, in the past before. We have, yeah. Yeah, we talked about Wembley and England and loads of good stuff. Yeah, and uh, well, we've got more good stuff coming up on on this episode um, because you you've kindly agreed to join me to to take a look back at, at Terry Venables' career, be it his playing career, um, his England time. Um, a man of of many talents, it would appear. I've read both his autobiographies, um, and you have uh, you've researched his. Um, a, a program on Sky that was made about him, which I hadn't seen. How? What was that? Yeah, it was called uh, Terry Venables: A Man Can Dream, and that was pr- pretty well done. I mean, it covered most of his life and career up to Euro '96, but nothing after that. But uh, certainly touched on well the the myriad of activities he got involved in. It really is staggering, uh, and the talents of of the person as well. It's, uh, it's amazing he, he crammed all that into a lifetime in the public eye. Yeah. Well, you, you say it ended on the uh, just after Euro 96. His first autobiography that I read, uh, that ended just as he took the uh, the England job. And I was like, oh, no, I need to read more. Um, and then it was only 2014 that he released his, his other book called Born to Manage. So, um, yeah, he's had time to to write two books or, or to have two books ghost written for him, it would appear. But yes, plenty, plenty I've learned about him doing the research for this. He, uh, he was born actually 6th of January, 1943 in Dagenham. <laughs> and it sounds very, very bizarre. He, um, he nearly didn't make it by, by all accounts because, uh, the, uh, the German Luftwaffe bombed his uh, his parents' house ever so shortly after he'd been born. Wow, that was uh, that was a near miss. Yeah, he was uh, changed football history. It, it could have, yeah. We may, may never have never have uh, never have had Terry had um, they not. It is, I think it was his mum not gotten out of the uh, out of the house to move to uh, to her parents' house. But as any sort of young aspiring footballer uh, he grew up in amongst his peers kicking the balls around on the uh, on the streets of Dagenham uh, you often hear these sort of stories of how sort of footballers of that era were doing exactly the same thing didn't you yeah I mean I did that myself but it didn't <laughs> quite have the same outcome <laughs> for me uh, but I do one of the uh, the stories on the documentary is his mother saying that they bought him a bike uh, at one point and he rode it until somebody said I don't know if it was a family friend said that that builds up all the wrong muscles for a footballer riding a bike uh, and from that point onwards he never rode it again is that right yeah <laughs> sure oh, how dedicated he was even at that age yeah well I wonder you see all these footballers doing their their training and rehabilitation and some of them are uh are riding bikes is some there was a period of time recently where I saw there were players riding bikes at the side of the pitch really yeah obviously the uh the static bikes not ones that uh yeah. um like go up and down the pitch so uh yeah maybe maybe physio side of things has changed and, and ethics on it maybe they look at it well, a bit differently 
I know I've experienced that myself with people who've, who've ridden bikes and they're they're better at going up hills on a bike. And I was always better at running because I, I played football so I could run up the hill, but not not on a bike. So it does. It is different muscles in the legs. Yeah. Well, the, the only thing I was good at on a bike was going downhill, I think. <laughs> yeah. I'd usually end up in the bushes. Yeah. <laughs> But obviously, growing up in in Dagenham, he had um, plenty of uh, clubs around him to to aspire to play for. Tottenham would be his his team that his dreams were were for. But he, he sort of trained with with various London clubs: Arsenal, Tottenham, West Ham. But come his fifteenth birthday, uh, it was Chelsea that signed him up. That was where his uh, where his football career sort of started. Yeah, I, I mean, there's been something about that club, uh, the nature of it that uh, attracted him to it. But he was obviously in great demand and well known in the area for his abilities. And I think a, a, a natural leader as well beyond his years. There's something about him where he's, he has his own record that he was the first player to be capped at every level of England um, and we'll uh, we'll obviously come to that but he when he was 17 he was offered a professional contract uh, and he turned it down as he wanted to represent Great Britain at the 1960 Rome Olympics as an amateur um, which obviously then would be another sort of string to his bow as in levels of football that he played for ultimately that didn't happen but by the time he was 19 um, he was a pro footballer, and it was from here that he would uh, sort of go on to to earn caps for England. But starting having played for England schoolboys, youth, amateur, under twenty three, and full international. Yeah, I think he won uh, something like half a dozen caps at schoolboy level. Right. Uh, so he'd, he'd certainly made his mark there. He won the the single cap at amateur level when he was seventeen. But I, I don't know what happened there, but he, ne- he never made it into that squad and he never played again, much to his disappointment. But the following year, he was captain of the England youth team, f- initially at amateur, I think. Uh, and then, yeah, he went on from there. He, he played for the under-23s, uh, as it was then, uh, I think when he was nine, 19. Um, yeah, and then ended up with two full international caps. It was a good pub question. I think back in the 70s when there were only those levels. Right. But now, nowadays, you've got under 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 and 21. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not sure anybody has done the whole lot uh, since then. Amateur's not there anymore, but uh, it's still a lot of uh, a lot of different levels now. Yeah, well, certainly, certainly some achievement um, for him back in back in that time really was. Um, and there was part of him uh with his with his mum that he had set himself this target as being a professional footballer um his mum was obviously behind him wanting him to do the best his her her son could could do but she said if you can play for England at schoolboy level I will then support you in becoming a uh, becoming a footballer so he, once he had that England schoolboy cap he sort of had his mum's blessing to to continue to play 
or to be a footballer then, which I think is a nice story. Yeah, he, he obviously got the right support from home to 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 push himself, and I think that's that's really important. I mean, you often find that some of the best players come from the the poorest backgrounds, but and poorly supported by the family. But in this case, he he had the backing, and I think his ambitions were pretty high from from very early on. He didn't just want to play football. He didn't just want to play for England. He he wanted to. He wanted to manage. He wanted to to own a football club ultimately. Yeah. So the sky was the limit for him. He often reached the sky as well. It would appear. Hmm. He. Uh, I'm going back to obviously his his time as a youngster was was around that sort of mid 60s time when obviously England were winning the uh, the the World Cup. He was actually on the the original shortlist, Alf Ramsey's original shortlist for the uh, the squad, but unfortunately didn't make that final 22. Uh, yes, he um, he played at all these levels, but when it came to the to the big ones, he uh, he didn't win many caps really, only two caps. He played, I think, both in 1964 against Belgium and and the Netherlands, but. He must not have fit into Alf Ramsey's plans at that time. And, and Ramsey had very clear ideas of, of what he wanted. So that midfield area uh, was occupied by the likes of, I don't know, Nobby Styles and Martin Peters and Alan Ball. And so Venables just didn't fit into that. And then, of course, Ramsey was still there up until uh, 74. So... Venables never got a got a look in again, which is a bit sad. Yeah, can't really uh, can't really say that Alf Ramsey got it wrong though, really, can you? Because <laughs> no, no, not really. <laughs> but I think the fact that, he, that he's a leader as well. I mean, and they had Bobby Moore. <laughs> yeah. So not much not much went wrong there, really. Maybe it was just the wrong time. Yes. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I do think there's a lot of players in the 60s and 70s who didn't win any caps or or not many but who would have done nowadays uh, nowadays there are more games as well and more sure. opportunities there are substitutes as well so but at least he did get a couple of yes well at the same time uh, whilst he was at Chelsea he then transferred to Tottenham in 1966 uh, promptly won the FA Cup and beating Chelsea of all teams um, but Tottenham despite him growing up seeing Tottenham as as the club they were back then playing the football they were he just when when he got there it just didn't seem to to really work for him did it no um maybe it was the beginning of a a slight decline I mean he would have grown up or in his early playing days Tottenham were winning the double and the FA Cup and the Cup Winners Cup I don't think he felt he, he fitted in so well at Tottenham, but he'd, he'd been more of a leader, I think, at Chelsea. And it, it wasn't so easy to to get across that sort of I think Tottenham were a bigger club mm. at that time. And I, I don't think he could influence as much as he wanted to, because, I mean, by this time he was, well, what was he, 24 in 67? Well, he was he was he was coming to his peak, I suppose, as a yeah. player. But yeah, for whatever reason, uh, sounds like it's more personalities. Uh, he didn't quite find his uh, his niche in that team, and there were a lot there were a lot of stars in that team. I mean, Jimmy Greaves was in that team. I think Dave Mackay 
was there. Alan Mullery, Pat Jennings, a lot of big names. But yeah, he wasn't he wasn't top dog. No. Sometimes it just doesn't fit. He he then moved um, to Queens Park Rangers, um, who were a second division side at the time. But that was really where I think he he found his found himself. He, he loved QPR, didn't he? Yeah, that that is my earliest memory, really. Of Venables was playing okay. for QPR in the second division. And yeah, he, w- he was a big name. And yes, it was a surprise for him to drop down to uh, the second division. I think QPR had, had a brief period in in the top flight at the end of the 60s. But uh, yeah, he spent the next uh, two or three years getting them up into the first division, which they did in 73. Right. Um, I think there, yeah, he found his, his place. He was he was captain and he was much more of a leader and maybe expectations were less at a club like that than they were at Tottenham. So maybe he just fitted in better. But it was whilst at QPR that sort of, he we've mentioned that there's various other outside interests um, that he had. And it was here that he became vice chairman of the Professional Footballers Association, which sort of gave him an insight into how that side of things um, was run. And I, I can't imagine a, a player in the Premier League now in, in 2023 taking on such a role as as vice chairman of the professional football association they've got so many other sort of things to to do with their time uh, it doesn't well it shows his sort of ambitious side i think yeah there, there've been one or two i mean the name jimmy hill springs to mind yes. as uh, pfa chairman the one or two players in the past have made that leap um Clark Carlisle was more recently. Oh, that's true. Uh, yes. Yeah, I I must admit I wasn't aware that Venables had been involved in the PFA, uh, but it it doesn't surprise me because he he was building up this this vast knowledge of of everything about football and the players players union and players rights. I think would help uh, towards his future man management skills. He was very good at that. Yeah. Uh, maybe a little bit of the business side as well, but I think it was around this time he was starting to build up a few sidelines. He had um, a tailoring business, didn't he? Yeah, I, that was mentioned in the documentary. The okay. interview, George Graham and, and Ron Harris, and they, they said it it didn't go that well. I think they were aiming at too, uh, too big a market at that time. They were looking for wealthier clients i suppose right <laughs> didn't get enough of them <laughs> <laughs> as the businesses tend to fold with that <laughs> yeah yeah there was um let's say just sort of off the field off the field interests um another one was was show business it was now that he was sort of at an age where he was taking an interest in uh singing he'd done tap dancing there was mime acts as well and apparently even got through to the uh, a talent finals at Butlins. <laughs> yeah, he's certainly a, ma- a man of many talents. I mean, footballers of that age just didn't do the, these things. <laughs> I don't know why these sort of entered his head as things to do, <laughs> but um, it, it was certainly very unusual at that time. Well, probably is a bit now for 
for players to get involved in in that sort of thing, writing books and, and singing. And But I think another thing that was said in the documentary uh, said that his mind was running at 100 miles an hour. He was always thinking about things, things to achieve. So I guess he needed these these other things just to just to keep him going. Yeah. He couldn't just concentrate on football. I guess as well, back then, they don't have the maybe the outside interests of what players do now. Um, I guess instead of going after training, going to a cafe and, and sitting around with the other players, he chose to do these other external enterprises. As you say, he became uh, an author as well. Um, he... I haven't read these books. I've done the research of his autobiographies, but I haven't read these books called Hazel. Um, is that something you'd heard of before? Uh, I think I've seen the TV programme back in the 70s, uh, uh, Private Detective. Yeah, something uh, like that, yeah. And I remember the guy who played Hazel, but I can't really remember too much about the programmes. I remember watching the Sweeney around that time. That was more memorable. Right. But, but I mean, it made there were only three channels and it made sort of prime time TV. I'm sure it was probably on about nine o'clock on ITV or something. So it was it, it was big at the time. It was by this time that he was he was now playing for for Crystal Palace. So he was still in London, obviously played for Chelsea, played for Tottenham, played for QPR, played for Palace. And it was now that his sort of career as a player was beginning to transition wasn't it into sort of management yeah he was he was working with Malcolm Allison renowned coach from Manchester City and previously at West Ham uh, he was a brilliant coach actually was he made a really good team with Joe Mercer late 60s City won the league and then the FA Cup and then the Cup Winners Cup and the League Cup and then uh, Allison moved on to Crystal Palace and they always said he made he was a brilliant coach, but not a very good manager. I think Mike Summerby was quoted as saying that. Uh, so I think probably Terry Venables, he, he needed a foil, somebody to work with him, even though Venables was, was more of the coach. Although I suspect Venables was also did a bit of management at that time as well. But uh, between them, they were quite successful. They got Palace to the FA Cup semi-finals in 1976 as a third division club. And that that was a massive achievement. So Alison was getting a, a lot of publicity. He had a fedora hat and a cigar. He was quite quite flamboyant. Quite the character. Uh, yeah. And then Venables ended up replacing him as manager. I think the the following season, and took Palace from the third to the first division, two promotions. Which I think people f- forget about that achievement. I mean that that is quite impressive, really, to take any club from the third tier to the top flight in uh, three years, I think it was. Or three I mean, seasons. yeah. Well it, well, it didn't go unnoticed um, because 1978, Ron Greenwood, who at the time was England's senior manager, approached him about working for the England under-21s with, with Dave Sexton at the time. But he, he, decided, to, he decided against it, um, stayed with, with Palace, um, and, uh, and and carried on there, as you say. He um, he took took them from the, the third to the the first division, which is quite an achievement. Yeah, and he obviously had 
well, at various stages in his career, he had lots of other offers. Uh, it must be quite difficult trying to choose what's the best for you at any one time uh, when you've got all these tempting offers from some of the biggest names and the biggest clubs. Well, there, there was one story about Arsenal approached him to be their manager before he'd sort of really begun his work at Palace and he was sort of in limbo as to what to do. Yeah, he was he was always um well obviously obviously well known and viewed as a as a, a brilliant coaching prospect and he, he appeared on TV quite a lot. He was interviewed quite a lot and he always sounded really articulate. So I guess he just created this image. This is a really intelligent guy who's uh maybe he's brilliant with the media, he's good at coaching, uh he gets football teams to win games so what can possibly go wrong it ticks all the boxes doesn't he absolutely well it was 1980 I think Palace were were now in in the top flight they they began the season pretty poorly there was a bit of unrest around the club and and in the boardroom and he decided to to make the switch from Palace to QPI went back to Queen's Park Rangers um, and in doing so, he became the first manager to cost a transfer fee, apparently 100000 between the two clubs. I, I never really thought about sort of managers having transfer fees. No, and it's it's the first I'd heard of, of that. I mean, I'm sure there's been lots of deals that we're not aware of that have gone on uh, over the decades as, as managers have changed clubs. But I. I don't know how that would have fit with any regulations. Uh, I mean, player transfers were pretty well documented, but manager transfers, I don't know. Perhaps that's just something agreed between the clubs. He he left Palace, I think, at the beginning of 1980, there was, well, there was a suggestion that this was going to be the team of the 80s. He brought a load of youngsters through at Palace, players like Vince Hilaire, brilliant winger, uh, and they were quite exciting to watch. And it didn't seem to translate very well to the first division, was, is, as is often the case. So, yeah, I guess he he decided. Well, I think there was a lot of disagreement in, is it in the boardroom. He wasn't getting the support that he that he wanted. I think that's no. what, what a lot of managers cite when it's going wrong as well, isn't it? Yeah. Transfers don't yeah. come off. <laughs> that's it. He, he had a good... Four years at, at QPR. Um, it, it's just before my sort of recollection of, of football um, that period. And you, you'll probably remember this m- more. Whilst he was at QPR, he took them to an FA Cup final, didn't they? Uh, whilst he was against Spurs. He did. 1982. And um, they held them to a draw. I mean, Spurs were the holders. The, this the year after the Ricky Villa goal and Ardiles, but QPR had uh, who was it Tony Curry in the side, ex England international, and yeah, I think it was the season after that when they got the artificial pitch. They were the first club in this country to have uh, astroturf pitch, and that gave them a a big advantage. I think he was uh, quite an advocate of that as well. I think from reading his book, yeah, didn't he write a book called "They Used to Play on Grass"? Uh, yes I think I think he did yeah I don't I know what that might have been one of his novels I think which was like a a forerunner to how he was thinking 
come like this time with QPR and the plastic pitches. Yeah, I know. I know the the bounce was the the ball used to bounce quite high, and I think that uh, other teams found it difficult to adjust to it. But it was good for a passing game, mm. uh, and Venables was certainly an advocate of that. Uh, and after that cup final, uh, he got. I think the following season, QPR, they win the second division title. They, he took them into the, the first division. So that was his third promotion in something like uh, six years. So, yeah, he's, he'd certainly got the Midas touch uh, with these two London clubs. And then I guess he was looking to move on again. Well, I, I don't know. Was he actually looking to move on or or did this big juggernaut of a Spanish club called Barcelona just pick up on him because it seems the most strangest transfer of well change of clubs that there could be at the small with the greatest of respect to QPR uh, a small London team to arguably one of the two biggest clubs in Spain not arguably they are yeah and I think it's probably like when Arsenal got Arsene Wenger and people said Arsene who. So I think with, with yeah. Barcelona, they said who? Terry who? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they, they said that he was the guy that just came off of the beach and just turned up to manage them. <laughs> yeah, but he's such a, I mean, a, a pleasant figure. He just won them over straight away. He learned a bit of uh, Catalan. He was there in a Barcelona shirt when he was unveiled as the as the new manager big crowd in the in the new camp and uh they seemed to love him straight away and they started winning as well but somebody in in the the barcelona hierarchy had uh, had been impressed obviously with uh venable's track record and saw that potential do you remember it at the time like were there were there stories here like why was he going um can't remember particular stories but he it yeah, it did seem unusual. Uh, I mean, it's very rare for an English manager to go abroad. But Barcelona, were they hadn't won the league for 10 years. Uh, so I think maybe there was a thought that they were in a, a bit of a decline. So there wasn't as much pressure on him. Right. Um, I mean, I mean, always, if you go into smaller clubs, I mean, like he'd been at Tottenham and then ended up at Crystal Palace and, and QPR. There's less expectation, which I think is always is a is a good career move in any walk of life. Yeah. Well, he one of the first things he sort of aimed to do was to keep Maradona, um, which unfortunately didn't materialise. I think that's possibly one of his regrets that he wasn't able to to work with Maradona. But I think basically. Barcelona needed the the money and and he was then transferred to Napoli but it his first game for Barcelona as as coach they they beat Real Madrid 3-0 away so I think as soon as you do that you you're in for life really then aren't you um, <laughs> well a couple um, of years anyway <laughs> well that's right yeah and and it was that first year he went on to win the league for the as you say it was they they hadn't won for quite some time since 1974 so yeah 10 years um that Barcelona hadn't won the the top league in Spain and and they eventually finished 19 points clear of of Real Madrid yeah that was impressive i think he had to win over the fans as well in in the Maradona issue 
to emphasize that there are there are more players than Maradona you know it's not just a one a one man team uh, and he brought in Steve Archibald from Tottenham which was another very unusual uh decision because Archibald I mean he'd scored goals for Tottenham but you know he wasn't a massive striker he wasn't somebody you'd ever consider Barcelona wanting but he did the job uh, Venables he said he knew Archibald really well he knew what he was capable of and he came in and he, he got those goals and they won the title so it was a masterstroke really yeah he would then obviously go on and and poach Gary Lineker and Mark Hughes to go over to Barcelona as well but before that I didn't realize that he got to the European Cup final obviously what people now know is that the Champions League um, he got to the European Cup final and, and lost to Stal Bucharest from Romania aren't they and I think it was around then that the the Spanish press then sort of gave him the name El Tel which then sort of stuck with him yeah I think if they'd won that game, there'd probably be statues of him all over Barcelona yes. because they'd never won it before, uh, the European Cup. And it was due to be played at the new Camp or the Camp Now, as it's uh, yeah. officially called, that season. But because Barcelona got to the final, it was switched to Seville. OK, I didn't realise that. Mm. And Star Bucharest were East Euro- first East European team uh, to win the competition. And they decided that it was going to be a a stop Barcelona at all costs. They were very unimaginative. They kept Barcelona didn't really perform on the night and went to penalties and it was two nil on penalties. I don't think I've ever seen a two nil scoreline in a penalty shootout before or since that. There were either some shocking penalties or some good goalkeeping. Yeah, I think mostly the the former. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the Romanian goalkeeper must have saved at least three of them. And it, it was such a huge anticlimax for Barcelona. You just thought this is their big chance to finally win it after Real Madrid had won it um, six times at that point. Right. Um, but it wasn't to be. And then, yeah, they signed uh, Lineker and Mark Hughes uh, for the following season. Lineker had done so well at Everton in his only season there. They just missed out on the double, really, that Liverpool had won. Uh, Hughes had been banging them in for Man United Um, but then it was all starting to go a bit sour I suppose for Venables Uh, once you stop winning well your your days are numbered or once you stop winning trophies yeah Um, Lineker obviously found his his feet there but I I get the impression that that Mark Hughes wasn't so so comfortable there yeah, I think that's right. Lineker did, didn't he score four against Real Madrid once? Uh, is that, no, no, hang on. That's, it was England that scored. He scored four against Spain, wasn't it? In At Real Madrid at the um, yeah, at Real Madrid, Bernabeu, yeah. Uh, but I think he scored plenty against Real Madrid. Maybe, maybe he got a hat-trick in one of those games. But it, at this time, it was also Johan Cruyff, uh, who was... Uh, big star of Barcelona from the, the previous time that they'd won the league. And he was just getting, uh, he was just getting going as a manager at Ajax. Uh, they won the cup winners cup in 1987. So I think Barcelona's hierarchy and fans were starting to look at Cruyff as the natural successor. You know, his, his, his home was, was Barcelona. Yeah. 
I get the impression though that it was it was an amicable separation between Barcelona and and Venables. They they just both agreed he would leave and and there was no official sacking. Yeah, I guess he couldn't complain really. He'd had he was into his fourth season and was that the longest in their history or something? I think that's right actually. Yeah, I seem to remember reading that that was the longest period that a manager had been at Barcelona. That's astonishing, really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, I mean, I know this, the Spanish do like to hire and fire. Um, but, yeah, and obviously now that Barcelona recently had was it Guardiola was there for... Actually, I don't think he was there for a huge amount of time, probably maybe maybe five or six seasons off the top mm. of my head. Um, and obviously Cruyff, I think, was was manager for some time. Yeah, he was the one that actually led them to their European Cup in 92. That was at Wembley, wasn't it? Against, oh, you're going to have to remind me that on a... Sampdoria. Yes, yes, yes. So I think that's probably one of the earliest European Cup I remember watching on the telly, I think, that one. Yeah. Prob- probably only because it was at Wembley that maybe I, I took note of it. Um, but yeah, I do remember that one. Once Barcelona was was over, uh, he always held a a fond spot for for Barcelona and, and Spain in general. But he had no other club lined up. He he was sort of jobless, really. Apparently Juventus made him an offer, um, but he was unemployed for a little while before Tottenham came along, where he was uh, employed by a manager, uh, but ultimately apparently was was just a coach. Um, on the uh, on the Tottenham side of things, yeah, um, Irving Scholar was yeah, uh, was he the chairman? Yeah, and I don't think they saw eye to eye. No, um, I think maybe all went well at first. I mean, he brought Paul Gascoigne in from Newcastle. Then he bought he brought Gary Lineker back from Barcelona. But then I think there was a there was a hint that. Th- of the financial troubles that Tottenham were facing at that time. They'd been trying to turn themselves more into a a leisure brand with fingers in lots of pies. And when they sold Chris Waddle to Marseille, I I was really shocked by that because I thought Venables was building Tottenham up to to make a real good go of it with all these star players, Gascoigne, Lineker and Waddle. And then Waddle just suddenly gets sold to Marseille. Yeah, they seem to have lost something from that point. Uh, although, of course, they did still end up winning the FA Cup famously. Yeah, uh, nine, 91 and Gazza's FA Cup, as it were, or his moment in the FA Cup. Yeah, I think Venables was, was the only one who really got the best out of Gascoigne. Uh, I don't think it's any coincidence that his two famous goals at Wembley were both under Gascoigne, the, the semi-final uh, against Arsenal. And uh, England against Scotland in 96, where we really saw the Gaza at his best doing the outrageous and brilliant goals that just took your breath away. As I've um, sort of mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, it was this sort of time where he encountered Alan Sugar and we kind of made a decision to maybe just skirt around that particular time um it is it's it's all there for people that maybe don't know about it 
but it's all there if you want to research it a little bit more. He he was also the subject of a a panorama documentary, which is which is on YouTube. Um, and and was that mentioned on the the film that you saw? Um, it was briefly, but they didn't really go into the the details, which was no. mostly Martin Bashir talking about Venable's business partners and the the various deals that they were making. Right, but ultimately. He was sacked by Tottenham on uh, the 6th of May 1993. So that was the end of his club management for a little while. That was until um, Graham Taylor resigned from from the England job after a pretty unsuccessful stab at trying to qualify for for USA 94. Yeah, and Venables hadn't coached really in anger since the end of that 1991 season because he was trying to concentrate on being chief exec of Tottenham uh, Peter Shreve was appointed as manager of Tottenham for the season after they won the FA Cup that didn't go down too well and then the season after that he did sort of get involved sort of in the background but it was I think it was Doug Livermore who was uh, was leading the team at that time and again after he'd won the FA Cup I thought we're missing out on the brilliance of Venables as a coach, really, or Tottenham are. But he obviously he wanted to be involved in the business side. Uh, and then when all that came to an end, yes, I think by that time, Graham Taylor had been. It was a big disappointment. It was a horrible time for England not qualifying for USA 94. A bit unfortunate, really. A lot of things conspired against Taylor as, uh, at the time. Not not all his fault. Uh, but. There was a clamour, I think, for Venables to be the next uh, England coach. I, I think because Taylor had had fallen out with the media quite a lot and they knew that Venables was so good with the media, he was the popular choice. Was he? I read that there were like Trevor Francis and Jerry Francis, Ray Wilkins. Um, they were in the frame as well, along with Kevin Keegan and Glenn Hoddle, apparently were, were even being spoke about back then. Right. I think Keegan had just started with Newcastle at that time and he'd he'd got them into the Premier League. Uh, Hoddle had also got Swindon as player manager into the Premier League, but probably a bit too early yeah. for both of those. And uh, Venables had won trophies as well. He'd won the La Liga with Barcelona. He'd won the FA Cup with Spurs. And I mean, I always thought at that time that an England manager should have won major trophies. It'd be very difficult nowadays because there haven't been any since Harry Redknapp in 2008. <laughs> wow. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not the well, that's It's another pub stat, isn't it? Pub quiz stat. Yeah. In fact, if you, if you want another, Go on. Uh, since then, 10 English managers have been finalists in competitions, but they, they've lost the finals. Since Redknapp. Is that right? Go on, yeah. Go on. Do you want to reel them off or should we wait till the end? <laughs> yeah, it might take me a while. I'll, uh, I'll get them, but uh, yeah, I'll reel them off at the end. <laughs> so, um, there's there's an amusing story of this this period that um, Jimmy Armfield was appointed by the FA to go look for or go and sound out some various managers to to see what they thought. Basically, it's an impromptu 
sort of off the, off the record interview. But there was there's an amusing story that Venables met Jimmy Armfield in his car the day after eating a, a heavily garlic laced meal. Um, and he was conscious that his breath stank of garlic. So he uh, he answered all his questions by turning his head away to him, which, which I thought was quite amusing. Uh, not the fact that just having a an impromptu meeting in a car. Um, I mean, the FA obviously knew what he was capable of, but I think they were at the back of their mind. They were concerned by the the Alan Sugar events that had taken place previously and and if anything else was to come out in the wash at a later date I think was one of their concerns yes and they they were very clear to make him a head coach rather than a manager to sort of distance distance him from the football association I think uh, most England managers the the ideal really is that they're going to promote the football association at all levels, mm. uh, like the, the the blazer brigade, if you like, <laughs> or how it used to be. I hope it's not like that anymore. But so, yeah, he, he was only there to to coach the players. M- maybe that was a bit of an insult to him. Uh, and as we've seen, uh, that arrangement didn't didn't last very long. Because by the end of 1995, he decided he was uh, he he was going to leave the England job after Euro '96. Yeah, it was it's it's a strange sort of period. He as England manager, he he only had 24 games, um, of which he won 11, drew 14, and only lost one, uh, of which was to Brazil, which is. Uh, is, is no no bad thing really uh, no um but it was such a a short period really wasn't it what, what what was the situation with him sort of deciding to to call it a day we're kind of jumping from the beginning to the end without doing the middle but i think it's important to uh <laughs> to clarify um yeah I, Members of the board wanted didn't want to offer him a new contract until after Euro '96. Uh, I think I think Noel White's been mentioned as yeah. As well as, he was so, a Liverpool director, I think, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. There were these court cases that were still ongoing. I mean, none of which implicated Venables in the end. But I think he he felt that in his employers should be supporting him more than they were. Uh, and they, they couldn't really judge him until after the championship. But all managers nowadays, they would be given longer. You, you would have thought that Venables in the same situation nowadays would have been trusted to, particularly by the FA, to go beyond. It, they would have signed a new contract Yeah, with it. Gone on. I think he was looking for France 98, 1998 World Cup. He thought he'd done enough to to justify a contract extension to then. But I don't know, clashes of personality. And he was a larger than life personality. Uh, and I think some were mistrusting of that. Maybe a little bit scared of him, were they? Uh, yes. Yeah, I'm sure there was an element of that. Yeah. It's just, as I say, he had these only 24 games um, in charge of England, of which none of them were 
qualifiers or competitive games really until that first game in Euro 96 um, against Switzerland. Yes, that, that's true. And we we never really knew how good England were up to that point. Uh, it had been such a low key time since, well, the end of 93, really, when they'd beaten San Marino and got uh, knocked out. All of those friendlies. So I don't think many people were taking much of an interest in it. Um and Shearer wasn't scoring. He'd gone for nearly two years without a, an international goal while still banging them in for, for Blackburn. Yeah. And in that uh, documentary, there's an interview with Shearer and he said that Venables said, no matter what, you'll be playing in this in this tournament. You'll be my number nine or whatever. And Shearer said, when I heard that, I felt I've got to make it up to him. I've got I've got to justify this. Yeah. Uh, and then came the tournament and he was banging them in for fun. Wasn't he just? Yeah. So that, that was a great piece of man management, I thought. Yeah, he, he was good with that. And I think the sort of his man management that he he picked staff to work with him, around him, sort of in the lead up to the, the championships, Euro 96. Well, the staff he picked were, were ones that had previously worked with him um sort of he worked with Dave Sexton and, and Don Howe they came and sort of assisted him Brian Robson Ray Wilkins came along as well sort of with view to sort of going forward afterwards for England yeah I think Brian Robson was particularly highly thought of he'd started as a player manager with Middlesbrough in 94 I think which would be the same year that Venables started with England Uh, He got Middlesbrough into the Premier League. So I think the feeling was that Robson could be a future England manager. And Venables obviously got on with him uh, from different ends of the country. But, uh, yeah, they got on. He seemed to fit in really well. Uh, And, of course, the players, a lot of the players would know Robson. Some of them even played with him for England. So it was a good continuity there and got, got the best out of them in that yeah. tournament. Yeah. Uh, I, w- I was going to touch on the, the events uh, leading up to the, uh, the tournament, uh, Hong Kong and, and China. Yes. yes. The there. The China jump club. I think that was called, wasn't it? <laughs> he, uh, he wanted the players to have uh, a bonding session thousands of miles away from prying eyes. Uh, and I think that that backfired a little bit. Uh, they sort of, went to town with uh, the drinking and causing damage on an aeroplane. And there were there were calls, I think, for him to resign or something like that. They were getting a lot of stick about that. But he didn't force any players to sort of own up to anything. They just stuck together as a team and say they, they got together and I think they paid for, for the damages. So he didn't hang anybody out to dry. And I think that was another good man management. I got thing. a feeling he actually says in uh, one of the books, uh, I can't remember which one it is. He, I think he actually says that the, the TV destruction story apparently wasn't true. Or he he said that he didn't see any damage to to any televisions. I don't know if it was ever proven or if it was just a, a, a story put out there to sort of. Right. Well, this was was this on the plane? Yes, yeah. 
I know um, Teddy Sheringham and Alan Shearer in the documentary said at one point there was a player up in the in the luggage rack. <laughs> <laughs> so it was pretty boisterous, I think. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm just trying to think who that could be, but perhaps we yeah, shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no. I've got an idea, though. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> There's an interesting, as you say, that, he when he was sort of in this position of making the choice to stand down after the after Euro 96, he was put in a press conference just before the tournament with Glenn Hoddle, who they'd already appointed to take over the role going forward to the World Cup. And I've I'd never heard of this before. I've seen subsequent pictures, but he had a press conference as England manager with the future England manager. Yes, that, that's unprecedented, isn't it? It's, it's very rare for that to happen. But he's, he's such an amicable guy that he, he handled it. Yeah, he can't have been happy about the situation, though. Must have been a real uncomfortable one. I mean, Hoddle was popular. Uh, I think the feeling was that it was a bold decision by the FA to go for somebody that young. But it was a, it was an exciting time. He felt yeah. if, if England did well, at least they'd, they'd be in good hands, even with Venables moving on. Obviously, Euro 96, as we say, it started maybe a little bit slowly with that draw against Switzerland. Gaza's goal against Scotland and then the uh, and then the demolition of of the Netherlands in that last group game. Um, Venables in, in charge of it all. Spain were, were next up in the. Oh, that, but that was the quarterfinals, wasn't it? And the penalty shootout. Um, and then, obviously, it it all came to an end. His his last game in charge of England was that one against Germany. Yeah, so many memories from that tournament. I think that's my favourite tournament that England have ever been involved in. Uh, it, it just brought the whole country together. There was such a feel-good factor. And that astonishing performance against the Netherlands, where they, they absolutely destroyed them. And then I I was shocked when we lost on penalties to Germany. I was convinced we were going to win that no matter what. Do you think that had he have stayed, had this whole situation with with Noel White and the FA, if, if it hadn't have come out and he'd gone on as England manager to, to France 98, would we have done better? Would we have got past Argentina? I know it's all very ifs and buts, but... It's a million-dollar question, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think it would have turned sour maybe at some point. Right. Uh, and looking at his his experiences throughout his career, he didn't stay too long anywhere, especially in, in management. Uh, it's probably three, four years was the maximum. So by, by France 98, that would have been four years. I'd like to think that he would have handled some of the situations in France better than Hoddle. Uh, things like Michael Owen went to include him. There were problems with Teddy Sheringham before that tournament. Uh, and I think Hoddle hung Sheringham out to dry a little. And Hoddle seemed a bit cold towards some of the players. I think Venables, it would have been a happier squad, I think, in that tournament. I think with his man management of Gaza, the situation there, I think, would have been a lot different. Yes, 
I mean, maybe Gaza would have gone to that tournament. Yeah. Um, Beckham as well. David Beckham. Uh, he was he was sort of held back initially. I don't think Venables would have had the problems that Hoddle had. Okay. But that's not a guarantee that they would have done any better. As I say, it's all, all if, buts and maybes, yeah, isn't it? It is. It is. So after the, the Euros, he, he had plenty of job offers by all accounts. Apparently he turned down the, the Turkish national side. I can't see Terry Venables in charge of Turkey. That that one didn't didn't really sit with me, that one. Um, I couldn't see him sitting on the bench there in, in Istanbul. Uh, but he did... He'd always had this idea of of owning a football club as one of these other sort of extracurricular sort of jobs. And, and he took on Portsmouth, didn't he? Again, something I wasn't aware of. No, I I didn't really know too much about that. Uh, I think, was he chairman under Milan Mandaric? Yeah, I think he was a major shareholder. Um, I don't know if he actually became chairman, but major shareholder. Um, right. And it, it just seemed to be a well, it was a bit of a uh, maybe sort of cheating the role a little bit. But it seemed to be a little bit of a sideline because come November 96, what's this probably four months after the Euros, he took the job of Australia coach with the aim to get them to to France 98. So he always had his his eyes on sort of that tournament. Um, and this this period with Australia was one again I wasn't really aware of, but it's fascinating. Yes, and he he, he did quite well with them really. They they got through all the qualifiers. What did they call him? L L Telephone. <laughs> yes, because he'd done a lot of his initial work uh, with the team um, from his home in England probably yeah. down in Portsmouth uh he was coaching by phone I think before he he took his first his first coaching session yeah L telephone <laughs> <laughs> but uh he did he did turn up for more important friendlies uh and I I think well he was he was a big game manager you knew that he'd be there for uh, at the crunch and and I think eventually he won them over and he, he was getting the results. He was getting them through to this crucial playoff against Iran, where it was their chance to get to their first World Cup since 74. And he had some decent players as well. Uh, Mark Bosnich was in goal. As for Duca, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Harry Kewell. Yes. But, uh, Australians were starting to uh, appear across Europe and getting some really good experience so they, they were obviously getting stronger uh, but they had this unfortunate arrangement where they walked the Oceania region they won that easily they only had to beat New Zealand effectively and then they ended up with a playoff against somebody from either South America or Asia uh, and it was all or nothing on that and they did that for three or four World Cups in a row they played Argentina one year with Maradona in the side really <laughs> Well, the, yeah. this one was a, uh, as you say, against Iran, um, a two-legged playoff to get to to France '98. They drew one all in Tehran um, in the first leg. Um, I've made a note here. He by then he was actually undefeated in 13 matches as coach. So it really was quite an achievement. But it's it's the second leg of this playoff that is really sort of interesting and, and again I didn't know about uh, they played it 
in Melbourne at the what's the big stadium there? It's the cricket stadium. Ground. Yeah, Melbourne Cricket Ground. The MC, MCG, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, huge stadium. And they were 2-0 up. It, it got it. Everything was going fine. They were 2-0 up. They were going through with about half an hour left to go, I think. Yeah. Everything, as you said, would go in swimmingly. Uh, it's probably thinking about Australia playing England in the 98 <laughs> World Cup. Uh, and then some lunatic invaded the pitch. <laughs> Have you, have you seen, was this on the, the documentary? Uh, no, it wasn't. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it's on YouTube. It's worth checking out. As you say, yeah, this lunatic, although Venables actually said he was schizophrenic, um, but I I don't know if that's a fact. I don't know if he just he just said that. But this guy mm. ran onto the pitch whilst they were 2-0 up and pulled the goal net down. Yeah. He was well known for disrupting sports events. Right. Uh, but that w- it was the worst possible time. Uh, and maybe it was the inexperience of uh, the Australian team and the the pressure and the how tense a situation it was that it, it really destroyed them. I, was it six minutes the game was held up for while they repaired the net? So, yeah. And then he ran, pulled a goal back. Pulled another, it, didn't they? Two, two goals back in that last yes. half hour, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And ultimately and, went through on away goals. Yeah, and Venables was criticised for his for not bringing substitutes. Well, he he got two defensive subs lined up to try and hold on to the lead. Right. Uh, and he didn't put them on until it was two two, till they were going out on away goals. So, oh, I see. So it all turned a bit sour, and it was it was heartbreaking really, from from their point of view. And following on the back of, I mean, Euro 96 was only like 18 months earlier to miss out on, on the penalties. It's, and then the penalties in Barcelona at well, as well in the European Cup. Yes. Fight. <laughs> you really felt for the guy, just not going for him at yeah. the critical moments. Yeah, I hadn't sort of put all of that together, actually, when you, you think about that. Those, those, those fine margins where it just didn't fall his yeah. way. Yeah, just think what would have happened if all those three had gone his way. You know, European champions with Barcelona, possibly European champions with England if they'd won that game. Taking Australia, well, if they'd done that, he, well, yeah, he'd still have left England, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah. That would have been embarrassing for the FA. <laughs> well, I think to to his credit, though, and with Australia, I think they do put him as one of the initial founders, really, for for what the A-League in Australia is now, because that game against Iran, it was a, a full sold-out stadium, um, and it's a big stadium, I think with nigh on 100,000 capacity, that interest in football in Australia then sort of began. Yeah, it was another, it was 2006 when they finally got to the World Cup, uh, and Hus Hiddink led them there in the end. Uh, right. They, they moved to the, the Asian zone. So they got more more regular competitive action. And I think that's done good for Australia because they've been to a few World Cups since then. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it, it probably was the beginning. Uh, yeah. Just unfortunate that Venables had to suffer uh, <laughs> to get that interest. Yeah. Now, if, if you go and go and find it on, on YouTube, it's, it's an interesting just just that last 
half hour of, of Australia losing their rhythm um, and this guy chopping the, the net down. This the, the local Australian police are putting the net back up. Um, that's, I think, how how underprepared, as you say, they were. Um, but ultimately, he he would then leave leave Australia. Uh, it was with a record of only two defeats in in nineteen matches. But as I said, he he'd had this sort of dallying with Portsmouth, but that kind of ended um, in ninety eight. Um, as Portsmouth, as as many Portsmouth fans will remember, they had a lot of financial troubles at the, the period of time with Milan Mandaric. Um, which which wasn't particularly pleasant, I don't remember, um, for, for Pompey fans. No. I wonder if uh, that was sort of Venable's last throw of the dice in his dream of wanting to, to run a football club or to own a football club, because I, I don't recall him getting involved at that level with any more clubs. Well, he, he had a period of time of Crystal Palace, which didn't go to plan. Leeds United was which he, he claims was a disaster of a move. Um, again, the financial issues at Leeds, and he, he just didn't really get along with Peter Risdale, chairman there. Um, he had a period of time with Middlesbrough, you may remember, when Brian Robson was in charge. And it was kind of like a roles reversed, where he'd asked Brian Robson to come and help him in, in Euro 96. Middlesbrough were now, as you said um, earlier, that, um, Middlesbrough were now up in the Premier League. They they had a bit of a, a troubling start, um, and Brian Robson was kind of man enough to to ring Venables up and say, "Do you, do you fancy coming helping me?" Yeah, uh, Brian Robson was well supported by Steve Gibson, I think, the owner of Middlesbrough at that time, because he got them up initially, and then he got relegated and got them to three cup finals in in two years. Uh, signed Gaza, you remember him playing yes, for Middlesbrough? Yeah. Uh, got them back up again, uh, yes, and then they were they were sort of hovering around the relegation zone, I think. Uh, and Venables helped to steady the ship. And as I said earlier, he he seemed to get on really well with Robson. Good good relationship between the pair of them. Mm. But he just had one more sort of go with England, as you may remember. And, and again, it it wasn't the best period of time. England under Steve McLaren. Um, we all remember I mean, the first image that comes to mind when you say England and Steve McLaren is, of course, the uh, the umbrella. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. But but McLaren asked him to become his assistant. But in a very strange way, he he didn't really want him so close. No. And you think the vast experience of, of Venables at, at this time, I mean, 2006, he was, what, 60, 63? Yeah, but it it's very difficult to bring somebody in like that. And McLaren was still trying to prove himself as a manager, really. He'd been a well, he'd been a coach for a long time at Man United. He'd gone to Middlesbrough, uh, won the Carling Cup, which was course, their yeah. first major trophy. And I think that got him the England job. But yeah, I don't know. At times I think he, he seemed a bit out of his depth or didn't get the he didn't get the right results. He made some poor tactical decisions. I think Venables in that position couldn't, I mean, he wasn't the lead coach or anything, was he? No. It's just a bit part. So he couldn't really show what he was worth, which is is a bit sad, really. There was a story that 
although they got over it after a while, apparently Steve McLaren asked Terry Venables to go and warm the team up on on the pitch before a friendly against Greece. And then when he said, I, I'd like you to, to be with me, but I'd like you to sit away from the dugout. Um, so there, there was always this sort of anim, uh, a little bit of a frostiness between the pair of them. And ultimately, let's say that the campaign for Euro 2008 didn't succeed and, and McLaren left. And obviously, so did, did Terry Venables. And that was kind of the, uh, was kind of a, a, a sad way for his managerial career to kind of fizzle out, really. Yeah, it is. But he obviously wasn't getting the, the big offers anymore, whether that was um, partly his age or reputation or... Or what? I don't know. But when you look at people like Roy Hodgson uh, nowadays, Neil Warnock, you know, if maybe Venables would have had to to drop down a few levels to if he'd been that keen to continue in coaching. I don't know without speaking to him what his <laughs> desires were at that point. Maybe but, yeah, back, it is a, it back is a to somewhere up. like QPR. Are you always what yeah. I read is he felt so comfortable at QPR that maybe that that would have been the an ultimate place to to really finish off yeah yeah I'm trying to think what what they were doing around that time no Harry Redknapp ended up uh, QPR for a while yeah I don't know I know he's he's ended up in a hotel hasn't he? he's running a hotel in Spain now yeah that is he's sort of living in living in Spain and, and enjoying life over there as, as far as I'm aware he sort of keeps himself out of the uh out of the media and he's obviously happy in happy where he is yeah, I'm, I'm sure he's regaling the customers of that hotel with <laughs> stories of the past. Yeah. I mean, if you were to, again, it's maybe a, a, an ifs and buts, but if, if you were to, to put him in, an, in a list of England managers, how highly would you, you put him there? He's very highly, I would say. I mean, you, the biggest successes you would have to say, Ramsey, Southgate, Robson and I put Venables in in that top four yeah I think he's got that that personality that supporters and and the media sort of he appeals to doesn't he he feels like he's one one of the boys almost yes he is you got the feeling that there wouldn't be any awkward silences or uneasy relationships uh when he was in charge and I think that was the case around the dressing room. I think he was always he was always the one leading the the fun. And he knew how to handle the more boisterous ones like Gascoigne. Yeah. In, and still get the best out of them. Strong enough but, to hold his ground as well. Yeah. Just ideal for the football environment, I would say, for, for dressing rooms and coaching and and games as well. Because his his tactics were spot on. In in that documentary. Gary Lineker said, you know, all the, the talk about Barcelona and the passing game and Pep and uh, pressing Man City and Liverpool. He said, we were doing it at Barcelona in the 80s. You know, Venables was doing it then. You know, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a new thing. When they, when they beat in Scotland at Euro 96, I think it was Paul Ince was saying, we were wondering what tactics he was going to use against the Dutch because they were one of the favourites. Uh, and we thought we'd, we'd get as many men behind the ball and try and catch them on the break. But he said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to attack them and we're going to surprise them. 
And that's why, if you remember, they the first goal against the Dutch. Uh, it's Paul Ince charging forward and he gets brought down or fouled by Danny Blint uh, and Shearer get scores from the penalty. And Ince said, I would never make runs like that. But he told me to do it. Really? Uh, he said, because they won't be expecting, they'll be expecting runs like that from, uh, I don't know, uh, McManaman or, or somebody, but not from you. So you, you'll catch them out. And he did. And that and once they were in front... I mean, they got a lift. They were already on a high after the Scotland game with, with Gaza driving them forward. Uh, and he said it seemed like every player was 10 out of 10 that night. It was a, a dream. Uh, great memories, that one. Great memories. Glenn, thank you very much for, for joining us. Really enjoyed having a, a chat about mm. Terry. Um, I know, obviously, you, you, you do the, the website England Football Online uh, with Chris Goodwin. Um, is that's all going well? It is, yeah. We we keep adding to it. It's just getting bigger and bigger. The last few months I've been adding uh, youth teams. Uh, we've got all the lineups from the under 16s now, and I'm going to have a go at the under 15s and schoolboy levels after that. It, it's it's the only place to go where you can find every England international from every level, or it will be, uh, and all the information that you could possibly want. Yeah, no, it's 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 a it's a always a handy tool to to go and look at. I use it frequently, um, and I know also you you had a hand in the the recent England shirt book. I did. I wrote uh, quite a bit of that book because I, I'd written the I'd written the the history of the kit from about fifteen years ago and, and built that up on on the website. Uh, so I was able to contribute. Uh, well, I was I was the main writer really on that on that book, uh, which which looks fantastic. It does, yeah, fabulous book. Uh, no, well done on that. Well done. It's it's, it's a great book, and I know many listeners have uh, have got a copy of that one. Um, so yeah, good stuff. No, thank you very much for for joining me. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. I did. Yeah, and, and we we should speak again. Let's we'll find something else to talk about. <laughs> yeah, hope so. That'll be good. Massive thanks to Glenn there for his time. There is a wealth of knowledge inside his head there. So many thanks to him for for sharing some of it. Don't forget you can check out englandfootballonline.com for all things England-related stats. You can still pick up his book on the old Wembley. You can find that online, all sort of usual places, eBay, Amazon. And also the Three Lions on a Shirt book, which, as he said, he contributed a major part to. Uh, Again, that can be found online and also at Vision Sports Publishing. And he also gave us a quiz question halfway through there, didn't he? Since Harry Redknapp won the FA Cup in 2008, 10 English managers have led their team out in a major cup final and lost. Uh, As promised, here are the answers. I must admit, I, uh, I struggled with these. So... 2008, as we said, Harry Redknapp um, took Portsmouth to the FA Cup final. The next year, 2009, uh, Harry Redknapp again uh, lost with Tottenham 
in the Carling Cup against Manchester United. A year later, Roy Hodgson lost with Fulham in the Europa League. Now, the 2013 League Cup, Phil Parkinson lost with Bradford City. Then we go on a run of FA Cups. 2014, Steve Bruce with Hull. Uh, 2015, Tim Sherwood with Aston Villa. And 2016, Alan Pardew with Crystal Palace. All were losing English managers in the FA Cup finals. Then in 2020, Dean Smith uh, with Aston Villa lost in the League Cup final there against Manchester City. Uh, Same year, 2020, Frank Lampard lost with Chelsea in the FA Cup final. Then two more League Cup finals to round it off. 2021, Ryan Mason was in charge of Tottenham as they lost to Manchester City. And only recently this year, 2023, Eddie Howe in charge of Newcastle lost to Manchester United in the League Cup or the Carabao Cup. How many did you get? So thanks to Glenn for that. And I've no doubt we will be speaking with him again in due course. Once again, thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed it and learnt some new things. He certainly was one of England's finest, was Terry Venables. I hope we've done him justice there, should he tune in. Uh, So as we've already discussed, Glenn Hoddle was next in the hot seat. He too has written an autobiography fairly recently. Uh, So I will start on that one in due course. And at some point be back with an episode on him. But before that, I'll have plenty of other England-related episodes to come. So I hope you can join me for them. Until then, take care of yourselves. Cheers. <laughs>